This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. I published like two or three articles in, in the Journal of Faculty Development. It sounded like a perfect hit to me. That's exactly what we're doing. It's the only Journal of Faculty Development. And lo and behold, I submitted my materials in December for promotion to professor. And the pushback was the Journal of Faculty Development isn't in PubMed. About that, I was yeah. for an audience of folks who were interested in faculty development, and so that level of naivete, not only among me and associate dean, but in general, faculty in general, understanding the impact factors of these journals, and then it really—I'm just so embarrassed to when I think about that. When my boss said to me, "Where can I find this journal of faculty development? Is on—is it in PubMed?" And I started looking, and I thought, "Oh my gosh, it's not." Dr. Darshana Shaw from Marshall University in West Virginia. Why don't you tell everybody your, all your titles? <laughs> uh, hi, Kim. Thank you. So I'm Darshana Shah. I'm a professor of pathology and an associate dean for faculty advancement at Marshall University Jones C. Edwards School of Medicine in West Virginia. Um, I also have another title I wear, which is I'm also founding editor-in-chief for uh, our Marshall Journal of Medicine. It's an open access academic journal. Wow, that's fantastic. I, I remember you starting that process a while ago, and that was quite a huge lift. So congratulations on that journal. How did Thank you. you. How did you get into faculty development? We've had a you know a few people already chimed in on the Faculty Factory website saying this, is, this series of podcasts has been so helpful because they're new to the field and they're really um, enjoying hearing how people got into faculty affairs and faculty development. So how did, how did your career get you here? So for me, it was uh, serendipity all the way. Uh, I think when I did my PhD, I don't think I had a goal of becoming a passionate faculty development person. Um, but as a PhD in biomedical science, uh, I joined Marshall University uh, Medical School as a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Pathology in early 90s. And as a young researcher and a young mother of two, I was actually juggling my valuable role at home and also learning to be an independent researcher in the lab at work. But I guess life had a, something else in store for me. So in my professional life, uh, my chairman who, pathology chairman who recruited me as a postdoc, he had to step down. Uh, our course director of pathology went on a medical leave, and I was asked to fill in temporarily. Uh, at home front, uh, my mother-in-law got diagnosed with breast cancer at age 59, and we were taken care of at home. And if you're a little bit familiar with Indian culture, a uh, lot of the things in helping, uh, even though I had a very wonderful father-in-law, but it's just the woman's role, so I helped mom cope up with everything she went through. So here I am in a larger classroom of life, uh, needed a faculty or a personal development in several areas. Um, I needed help or professional development in managing change, how to be a good teacher, because now I'm put in a separate role. Um, 
then how do I maintain my research footprint? Because remember, I was just starting out as a postdoc. Uh, when you're not so much in the lab, um, how do I actually get there to get a title of or earn a title of professor someday? Uh, how do I be a good mom, wife, daughter-in-law? So I mean, there are so many. How do I do that? So it's those are the stuff I felt that I needed in those days uh, as a faculty development. But as um, I guess most of us who are in this field or has become in that field, uh, since I was not a pathologist, I also learned in those days that I had to work and organize the course in such a way uh, that if I understand my second-year medical student, uh, then if I understand, they will understand. And that's where I think my PhD training come in. And I think one would say that your PhD was in biomedical science, but I think now when I think back, it was basically PhDs and a problem-solving attitude. So I had designed a new course and designed in such a way, just the way we would set up an experiment, what worked, what didn't work, how I can take it to the next, next level, and why it didn't work. So you always had the question why. So in 2004, uh, as running as a, uh, as a course director, which was, remember, it was temporary, but I became sort of 10 years temporary, so doing the same thing over 10 years. And uh, I started an Academy of Medical Educator um, with a small community grant because I also learned that students were very happy with the course. And then, of course, you have to build the continuum with our faculty who delivers this. Uh, build an Academy of Medical Educator in 2004 where big schools had it, but Marshall, of course, uh, uh, did not have something like that. So wrote a small community grant and started the Academy. But the... Goal was different, not recognize excellence, but build excellence in teaching. Um, so that was our goal at the time. And that landed me in 2005. I became an assistant dean of faculty development in medical education. That's how I came to the dean's office. And today, almost a decade and a half later, uh, I enjoy building platform, whether it is an academy or now, of course, it's a journal, for folks to pursue excellence in any area of their interest. And I love watching them take off from the platform I build. And I also feel that um, most of us who are in this area of faculty development, I think you may agree that we uh, what drives us is the success of others. I think that's how my journey so far to the dean's office and loving every bit of it that I get to pursue my passion. I have a purpose and a platform to do that. Yeah, you're right. Everybody has a, a heart of service for our faculty members. In in our faculty development academic affairs family, it's definitely the, the thread that binds us together. We definitely have a servant leadership um, tendencies. Could you describe your faculty development office for us? Everybody likes to kind of compare how their offices look to others. So in terms of... Sure approximate number of staff, who's doing what, just so we get a, a flavor for um, depth and breadth of our offices. Sure. So uh, just a little bit of um, background for our school. So we are a community-based medical school. We are located in heart of rural Appalachia. Uh, our size of the school is probably, you know, as far as the faculty, I have about 330 faculty. Um, and we do have a lot of uh, community-based preceptor who help us. So in this office, uh, right now, I have a one full FTE who supports in organizing the program and things what we deliver. 
But at the same time, um, I think whenever you come from a small place or a small town, the collegiality between other administrative offices are great. So our HR office, which is a practice plan, I do interact with them regularly. And now my office is actually placed under uh, clinical affairs. Uh, which I think is helpful because I get to meet and I get to know people. So full-time, in in a way, it's one, and then I'm point eight FTE. But then I reach out to these folks the way our, our chart is designed, that we get to uh, work with our diversity office, who is, of course, uh, next to my office, the way we are located, and, and they have a person whom we actually share a um, lot of our, our effort. So synergizing with different um, offices is is, is big, biggest resource. But to answer your question shortly, yeah, it's 1.8 FTE to take support of the 300 faculty. But if you look at it in that number, oh, my gosh, it's not that much because you do have other people doing, we're just aligning. And that's how I think over the years I've learned. And that's how we run our office here. That, that one FTE, is that a staff person? It's a staff, full-time staff, yeah. Uh, administrative or program evaluation or analyst? Um, so nothing. I mean, we have, um, so this, uh, it's just a administrative staff, but she is, uh, again, uh, very uh, tech savvy. So a lot of things, what she helps us with, with, with the data collection and all. Then we also have um, sort of our clinic, which one can actually analyze the data. So it's not, doesn't reside um, in, under this office, but our research folks have, which will actually help us out analyze any data. And as a faculty member, I take an advantage of stuff like that also. Sure. Now, you mentioned that you work with your HR office. Uh, can you just give us a snapshot of what kinds of um, programming or what, what they do for you in your role as in faculty development? So I report to our vice dean of clinical affairs. And I think over the years, this position has been shifted. And uh, now I think so. Uh, before, I think, and of course, the school has gone through transition, and, and a lot of schools probably have changed in leadership. But um, so my vice dean of clinical affairs, whom I meet on a regular basis, uh, uh, actually, we have a monthly meeting, but that is just on 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 the calendar year. But other than that, I still meet with him whenever there is a need if I arise. So for our HR, uh, also looks after our practice plan. So our CFO would meet the new faculty, and I meet the new faculty when they come board. I'm not involved that much in recruitment because retention is my responsibility as a faculty development person. So even like a launching onboarding, so we basically look at what each other does and then try to, I take the academic component uh, and I take care of that part. Uh, helping out organizing event, I they would help us out that any numbers, data collection, they help me out with that. So, so this is how I think you know because faculty affairs, uh, even though I the office name is changes and advancement, but a lot of policies and things like that. Uh, we also have our HR is equipped with a legal. So if I have to hand, uh, have some question regarding that, then they are there to help me out. So it doesn't sit under one um, umbrella of faculty advancement, but the way we work with the clinical affair, I have access to a lot of resources they have. Yeah, at Hopkins, we have an HR office, of course, but they don't deal with faculty. But we have a 
a stepsister arm of HR called Talent Management and Organization Development. And they, in fact, do um, conduct programs. They do workshops and seminars and a whole host of uh, staff and faculty development. The, the challenge for us has been that they came out of a model where they'd offer half-day or full-day sessions on, you know, communicating or negotiating or having difficult conversations and speaking like a professional. And so you can imagine for our medicine faculty, they don't have a half a day or a full day to sit in these seminars. So uh, we, we try to work really closely with our organization development unit to um, where we can have them pop over and do some speaking professionally, some kind of one-off sessions. But uh, we've really had to take the bull by the horns in our, in our office because our faculty just simply... You know, they can't do it. And they're frankly uh, insulted when they get these emails from our organization development outfit saying, come to the time management seminar. You know, it's four, it's four hours long. And uh, they think, are you crazy? So we, we I'm always curious how other folks um, have partnerships with HR or other units in terms of sharing faculty development programming. So I think um, so there are a couple of, uh, I'm going to respond in, like two steps. So one is that because of the size of our faculty and the size of our institution, um, and also where we are located, right? So we are in rural heart of Appalachian. So even the folks we which are recruited here as a different, I would say they are a different heart and the soul of those individuals because they really want to come and make changes here in, in rural West Virginia. But as far as faculty development, I think, so we have our um, sort of a PR person, and generally whenever we make any announcement, she keeps a sort of a calendar. So I would not host anything when something else is happening in the school. So we are all aligned that way on our calendar. And we also have a dean staff, which meets, which is apart from my direct report to my vice dean, uh, I, we also have a dean staff. So we generally, once a month, we share what's going on in your division or in your department or whatever. And then we try to not use those time slots because here they are the only faculty we are trying to pull in so many different di- directions, right? Research or personal or development or whichever way. So one is that, that we bring in alignment. Second is I think um, at least for – I can speak for the way I have been doing faculty development, as I said, doing it for – almost 15 plus years, um, we always had this need assessment, and I'm sure every office does that every other year or every two years. Or I have stopped doing that anonymous. I actually do it. There's no longer anonymous survey. So instead of just offering time management to the general population, we offer stuff, and I share those data if, if we have with, with our, since I, my office is, within the clinical affair. So I think those kind of things is very, very helpful. So my office will also conduct an exit interview, and now we are starting a stay interview. All this data I shared with my clinical affair folks. So they can we can use this proactively and, and work together. So on, on a big picture, um, I think more units and more divisions are created. I think people get less and less alignment, at least at small places like Marshall, we don't have to worry about that because we all wear those multiple hats. I hope I answered your question yeah, appropriately. That's perfect. And you said something that I've read a little bit about and I'm interested, and, I, and I'll kind of put it in the back here for a second because I'm wondering if you would tell us what 
you want to talk about today, something unique or something different, something you're excited about or something innovative. You did mention the stay interview, and I've read a little bit about that, but I'm curious. I was hoping that'd be one of the interesting things you wanted to talk to us about. But please uh, share with us. We're always uh, wanting to hear new ideas and what's what's exciting you down there at Marshall. Sure. So this, again, um, going back to the traditional faculty development, and I'm sure we all are familiar with it, right? So we often... As you mentioned, we are, it's treated, our unit is treated as a service-oriented entity, and then, you know, it's sort of a, as an end rather than a means to accomplish important goal in, within the mission of our school. And faculty developer, like me, if we are good at facilitating or conducting workshop, we really offer session focused on the personal mastery, whether it's a research or, or educator or clinical care, right? So we, we have been running the show for a long time in that way, but I think Today, I feel that the position of faculty developer demand vision. So we've done exit interview as like, oh, so what What went wrong, what we could do, improve. But the stay interview, I felt just the way I think, since I also teach medical students, and we have our evaluation for medical students, which is run by Office of Medical Education. But during my, my courses, I've always asked students to give me a feedback right there because if I didn't make changes with this class, Whatever they suggested, I did it with the new class. It's a new learner, right? So same thing with exit interview. If whatever they found things to improve, they are already gone. That's something they perceived. But what about the people who are already here? So that's the, the that's kind of a parallel. And I think it always helps because when you are, you know, if you if I'm um. Uh, faculty to continue to have in my role. So as I'm a teacher too. And so most of them, you look at it, it's a learner. And I, if whatever I implemented in my courses, I bring that back to my faculty development job. And I feel, and then I looked at the literature and there's a lot of literature on stay interview. Uh, so I think initially why the idea came up because uh, we were struggling with our diversity standard. And in rural West Virginia, I mean, if you look at the percentage of it, we have 99.9 Caucasian, right? But if you look at our geographical map or the demographic map of faculty here, people are from all over the world is here. So I think it is important to find, do a stay interview for them and also build some data that we are not that bad. I think it's just that uh, people who have come from outside are very happy here, even for 15 plus years, you know. So that's why the stay interview came up to to come up with some documentation that we may not show you 50% is minority or things in that fashion, but we can show you that people who have come have loved the place. Does it make, you know, so that's another way to look at it. And as a researcher, we are always looking at a multiple way of collecting the data. So I thought this was another way to complement the stay interview with exit and also take a proactive approach and make the changes for people who are already serving our institution right now. How does that stay interview work? When when does that happen? So I think um, right now um, there are a couple of things, and as I said, we are just uh, rolling that out. Uh, so we first we thought the survey, but the survey is is not is going to be because you know most of the survey is a qualitative because we want it open ended, and um, I will be able to share this uh, little bit maybe later on because as I said this was the concept launched, 
and we are trying to figure out. I have met on one-on-one, but again, then we need to probably figure this out. How diversity office or my office, how we can all all come up together because it's generally this in in a format. The literature report is that you have to meet uh, on one-on-one, but right now we are just probably targeting our minority faculty. But then, and people from our, our indicated group is also Appalachian. So we thought we'll at least start with a small number of folks and offer them that would you do the survey open-ended? Would you rather do that or meet with us in person? So we're giving them, again, because I think most of us in faculty development, you have to give people options. So this, this day interview, the way you've conceived it is... In addition to a periodic needs assessment, you called it, or maybe like a faculty satisfaction survey. So we did our uh, we did our standpoint survey, and standpoint survey actually we did pretty well compared to a lot of a lot of other school. Our response rate was very good, and we had about almost sixty eight to seventy percent are very happy. But we still had to figure out what to do with the thirty percent, right? And sometimes I think those kind of data, unless you really meet, and that standpoint was. Uh, anonymous, but we still have. So we are just trying to figure out different strategy or different way to collect the information to engage the faculty. And you said what I what I'm proud of. So there are a couple of stuff I think I'll. I'll so one is the uh, you know, and again this may sound pretty um, cliche, but like you know, a lot of this uh, verb of um, so Henry Ford statement of anyone who stops learning is old, whether at 20s or 80. So now doing this for a long time, now I'm I'm learning like how to do this whole publishing and the journals. So that was something very new because, you know, we were not trained to be, a, to be actually launching a journal. So I think the journal, as you mentioned, yeah, I took the task and that was something my dean's idea. It wasn't, the idea was not mine, but I think at least I had an opportunity to launch it. So 2015, we launched, and we finished three years, actually, this October. And now I'm applying for different indexing because we launched it not through Elsevier or Sage, but from a very small, uh, I mean, digital comments of the publisher. And uh, we have about 37,000 downloads uh, from 173 countries. And whenever I have a project like that, again, you wear your faculty affairs hat and you wear your faculty development hat. So faculty development hat is by being a editor-in-chief. I think I have to do a lot more stuff on how to review a peer review because, you know, so offer those kind of uh, workshops. Um, also, not only for my institution, but, you know, wherever. So we've done that. I've done one in the... Southern West Virginia, which is a WVU extended campus. So, you know, wherever there is a need, you you go ahead and offer uh, at the same time. Um, I also learned that um, I have to basically uh, tell the PNT committee because I think what is happening is that I'm sure you at your institution, being Hopkins, it's a big stuff on impact factor journal, right? Uh, but the open access market is changing that big time. And I mean, um, Bill Gates and those kind of private foundation are actually going to go that make it everything open. The transparency is, is going to be there. So a lot of time, I think I hear that from our GME office and that ACGME needs PubMed ID. And if it's not PubMed ID, then this journal cannot be counted. And now since I'm going through the process, people forget that the new journal or open access 
journal, it's a process of getting indexed. Uh, so you take a number. It's not something that your journal is bad. Of course, you still have to look for the journal, which are, they call it the predatory journal, uh, where the fees are at least average of $1,500. So, I mean, so those things one has to look, but also to have an awareness that what it takes for one to index in PubMed. And I think it's we have become this easy way of screening. So PubMed ID becomes easy when you enter, all the information pops up. So I think sometimes I feel that it's just like, you know, your uh, SAT score or your uh, MCAT score because it just helps you get the information. You don't have to uh, worry with taking a large amount. So I think as a faculty affair person, I think I'm also, again, very stressing on uh, how peer, how is your peer review, whatever the journal you go with, what is their ethic policy, what do they stand by, how is the peer review process is done. So I think those kind of stuff we need to bring back to the policy aspect of it. I'm also learning now, trying to be involved in the team science, that how are they placed, what policy do you have? There is no longer in an in era of scientific collaboration, number one author versus number three author, what does that mean? So I think there's so much work to be done when, when new things come up. I think we, as a faculty development um, person or a developer, they really have to be, it demands, uh, our job demands us to be not only visionary, but also creative and maybe take, take in charge attitude to bring systematic change uh, by offering, you know, faculty development, not only at individual level, uh, but at MISO or at a group level, also at the organization. And I think those kind of things probably will something which we can be the agent of change. And so I think I get very much excited. There's so much to be done in, in our field. Tell us the name of your journal, Darshana. So our uh, name of our journal is Marshall Journal of Medicine. And our focus, Marshall, is, of course, our university. Journal of Medicine, and we focus on rural uh, health education. So I think our our journal is basically serving uh, rural health and Appalachian, but the rural is you know any part of the world probably people would be interested. That is amazing that you've had that many downloads and from uh, other countries as well in three short years. That's great. And we do get submission from everywhere, so it's not that we get only Marshall submission. Of course, we have a lot of stuff in West Virginia. And we have like double blind policy and things like that. So we, we really stand by the ethical standard for the journal. You know, this, this is such important work. And, I, and I, again, I remember when you were doing this and it's just nobody can even imagine what it takes to create a journal and that whole process and that whole machine. And as you've been talking, it just reminded me my own being so naive about publishing in faculty affairs and faculty development. <laughs> You know, the number one journal, as we know, in um, academic medicine is academic medicine. And so that's the gold standard that I thought we have to go there for all our publications. And, you know, they publish academic medicine publishes a lot in education. And it's um, it's a really high rejection rate. It's a it's a tough journal to get into. So my background is in gerontology, where most of my publications have been in the gerontologist, the journals of gerontology. And so. I understand how to do large-scale epidemiologic research. Well, when I got into faculty development, I really didn't know how to do scholarship in this space. And so once I finally got my head around the fact that I needed to start publishing some of these programs that we've been doing, 
I just naively just lo- started looking for journals that had something about academic affairs or faculty development, and I found the Journal of Faculty Development. So good old, you know, Rusty Carpenter. I think he has Rusty Carpenter, Journal of Faculty Development. It's a university somewhere south, and he has been a wonderful editor to work with. I've published like two or three articles in, in the Journal of Faculty Development. It sounded like a perfect hit to me. That's exactly what we're doing. It's the only Journal of Faculty Development and lo and behold, I submitted my materials in December for promotion to professor. And the pushback was the Journal of Faculty Development isn't in PubMed. <laughs> Think about that. I was yeah. looking for an audience of folks who were interested in faculty development. And so that level of naivete, not only among me, an associate dean, but in general, faculty in general, understanding the impact factors of these journals and then... It really, I, I'm just so embarrassed to, when I think about that, when my boss said to me, where can I find this journal of faculty development? Is, on, is it in PubMed? And I started looking and I thought, oh my gosh, it's not. I said, maybe it's in Cyclit or Sociophile or some of the social sciences, and it's not. And I, you know, I really got some pushback on that. So I think, you know, what you're saying is, is really important for the next generation about open access and and rethinking alt metrics and other ways of measuring impact. So I think uh, since you brought up this, I'm just going to probably also share, uh, since right now I'm going through the process of indexing. So yes, our gold standard for us who work in medicine is getting into PubMed and Medline, you know, so because that's where we can have a lot more people would be looking for. But with open access model, I think that is, Definitely, you can Google the verb and you'll have Google Scholar will pick up a lot more things you can probably even find. But I think specialty prefer that if it is also they have already got their name made. So, yes, that they would like to probably have in your gerontology probably will read only the gerontologists will read and your epidemiology article would be really great. Right. So I understand that. But I think what what is happening is that university do not have now the subscription based model is dying very quickly. And I think for us in West Virginia, we probably have conscious bias people have towards us and our institutions. If I was at Harvard or John Hopkins, if we wrote, it would be different, right? But if somebody writing from West Virginia, it probably may not be picked up, even though we are at the heart in, in the disease like obesity and people study us outside. But to make the story short, what I wanted to tell that you want people to publish at the high-profile journal, but also there are time intimidation kicks in and people don't want to take it if one or two rejection from the paper. So so our faculty uh, gets discouraged. So I think this is where one I noticed. So before launching the journal, we were uh, were offering the program called Aspire, and basically it was a personalized or customized program, whoever wanted to publish. And then that gave a birth to the journal. But to give you back the process, so right now, um, PubMed uh, or PubMed Central is what what right now I, I think I'll work on or I'm working on. But it is just like submitting a whole, uh, your proposal of this journal is like submitting to academic medicine or submitting to uh, submitting to nature or something like that. So the, your application is really, really big to do that. So they look for the technical standard. It means that whatever the metadata field the journal has, it should be able to pick up by any search engine. And the technical standard has certain, and I won't bore you with lots of detail on that. And the second is ethical standard. 
So whenever the committee meets, so before even I apply as part of my application, I really have to get it this journal indexed into other database. So the, the MGM is already indexed in Clocks, Portico, uh, WorldCap, ProQuest, uh, Summons, and uh, EBSCO Discovery. It means anybody can access, uh, and we also have a DOI on it. So, I mean, it's just that the readership is reading that even though we are not into PubMed yet. Uh, we also have to get, get an endorsement from some of the ethical agency, which are uh, Open Access Scholarly Publish or OPSA Association. Uh, we also have to get an endorsement for Committee on Publication Ethics. Also have to get an endorsement for World Association of Medical Editors. So I have, um, these are the stuff I, I has to line up before I even apply for PubMed. Other thing is that journal like ours, so I'm not somewhere in part of the world which people don't know, but of course we are right here in a, a proud country of USA and in West Virginia, uh, but we still launch through the not Sage or Elsevier uh, bigger platform, right? So they really have to watch. I couldn't apply to all this stuff I listed to you till the journal successfully complete minimum two years, you know? So, so those factors have to be taken in account. And I think for me personally, any journal editor, I'm sure they really strive to be the best to meet the gold standard of getting PubMed. And I think that's where we are all going. But I'm trying to sh share the journey that these are the things which comes in, in its way. So if somebody published that and not don't have PubMed ID, I think that's a lack of awareness for whoever Gauged it, and I had somebody calling me uh, from one of the neighboring states that their promotion and tenure does not take any open access. And I said, I have never heard that, but they must be very much behind uh, the what is coming up because you know that I can't believe that impact. What we all talk about creating an impact, uh, the way we think our journal is serving that somebody in rural part of West Virginia doesn't have to go to the library to read the article or pay. $67 to download that article, they can read about it right when, if they have access to Google. So I think that's something I feel that um, we need to probably bring a lot more awareness to PNT committee yeah. and this old school of thought where the impact is made. And impact is, again, relative, right? So, so I think there's a lot of system-wise issue. It's not your school or my school or this PNT or that PNT, but I think it's the social media, like as you said, all metric, are, and we use Plum, Plum Analytic on the journal. And Plum gives us exactly where this was discussed. And there is also, if you if you can download something called Publish and Perish, it's a free software um, actually developed in Australia. And I'm right now blanking out the name, but happy to share. But if you Google this out, you will be able to see... Um, that they have developed this, so they can say, you can say Google Scholar, or you can say Crocs or Crossref, which gives you DOI, and then you can write your name, and it will actually pull out everything about you, even calculate an age factor for you. So I think those are tools are very, very powerful uh, out there. It's just that I feel that as our role as a faculty affairs and faculty development, we need to do a lot more faculty development for our P&T committees. You are absolutely right. We, 
we're undergoing just so many of these same conversations at Hopkins when two, three times a year, we offer promotion sessions for faculty, how to get promoted to the associate level and then how to get promoted to the professor level. And so we have six of these sessions a year. And the past two, three sessions, uh, people are raising hands asking about social media and how does that count? Do Instagram and Twitter followers and that kind of presence on um, social media impact. And I, frankly, our, our committees are really struggling with how do, you, how do you measure impact in these different methods and considering if you have a lot of tweets or retweets, it may be because of negative feedback. So how do you kind of funnel that out? So it, it's, it's a huge issue and you're, you're right, I, Darshana, I never thought about us thinking about faculty development for P&T committees, but there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding that the faculty are, are pushing one thing and then a lot of the committees are from folks who are a lot more senior, have been around a long time, and aren't necessarily up on the new ways of communicating our data and our research and interacting with patients and colleagues around the world. So you are exactly right. And, and I think we're, honestly, I think when you said the negative or negative comment or whatever on Twitter or something, but everything that is the data, right? Why did somebody say that or whatever? So not necessarily you'll analyze our data, but you want the way academic institutions or whatever scholarly work we produce, it has to be communicated or con conversation has to happen, right? It's not that things keep changing. And by, by giving, I, I think the open access coming in has really made things very doable in a way. But so this year, I think last year, last two years, I've been doing onboarding for promotion and tenure committee. And in my onboarding, I'll show stuff like this because um, we have member come and go. And I think you really have to keep them up to date if which are the venue people are actually publishing. Uh, one stuff which I was ready to put out on our GFA list serve that is scholarly blog. When somebody asks you to write a blog, can that be considered? It's a peer-reviewed blog. Can it be considered towards the scholarly work? Because not everybody's asked to write a blog, right? If you are, if you have an area of expertise, then you write a blog. Or, like in your case, you screen people to to take do the podcast. Right. So, is that be considered a scholarly contribution? Because if you really look at the Boyer's criteria, it's communicated in whichever format. It doesn't say it has to be in written in papers. Fascinating stuff. A lot of stuff and a lot of things to do for us um, faculty development lovers, I think. So what else are you excited about or something new or innovative that you're doing in your office or something you'd like us to think about as a community? So I think the couple of stuff which we just touched bases on is just that doing this onboarding for PNT, the stay interview. And so more and more I meet people. We also do um, Success Begins With You series. And I think most of our programming I love acronyms, so I'm always looking at the acronym, but most of our programs are now personalized or individualized uh, in a community format. And we also have like a faculty learning community. So that way I think people interact with the same interests they have. And I think uh, what I'm excited about, the tools, the new tools we have uh, got at our hand. Uh, so one of the programs we offer is like a, it's, teaching certificate and 
research certificate or the leadership certificate, which I think every institution offer. But we have, um, it was fascinating for me to see that we have on-site and on online. But basically online is not online. They can go and do it. But we use the Zoom classroom. And it was very um, refreshing for me to see that you have a young mother with a child, but actually logging in to be in the Zoom classroom. So I, I take pictures of that, and I think that is so fascinating because you can't, time is always an issue. So people with the little kids, you can't have them come after work. Before work, they're already tied up. So I think the excitement for us to manage this talent but meet people where they are not necessarily professional challenge, but even in their how can you fit in all this and people get excited to attend? So one, I think I feel that there is so much to be done in, in this area and use the tools which are available. What is this? Can you tell us a little bit, just a little bit more about that success begins with you? You said it's personalized or individualized. I was just curious what that is. So as I told you for our onboarding, we generally have, of course, our, uh, our CFO personally meets one-on-one to the faculty and the new faculty I meet them too, but then what we, and then we have two orientation, which is like a orientation style, fixed time, and we have all our leadership come in and we have a package, we go through promotion tenure, they also get a USB and all that standard, what everybody else is doing. Then we offer four session in fall and four session in spring, and um, I offer them and then also my P&T chair come in, and basically we we offer not only promotion and tenure, but also work-life balance. Or, But basically, the message we are trying to get that, that faculty development, we can offer as much as we can, but you have to be ready to take it. So we offer different venue where we actually interact with people so we know what else we could do better for them. So I think I can probably send you the success series our, uh, which we have created for new faculty. And that's just an opportunity for them to meet people from other departments because I think more and more technology is great. So you can do a lot of stuff online and you think you save time, but we human need another human to interact. And doing faculty development in the learning community sometimes, say someone, if I'm a new faculty and you've been here for a while and you've also gone through very successfully um, uh, raised kids and things like that, then if I get all theory about what to do at home, I don't have to really feel because you can talk to somebody. It doesn't have to be from your department. So I think the success series offers that kind of a platform which people can interact. And I think you you don't want to go completely online because then you, you really need to have that human touch there. Yeah. Another program which we offer is actually, I call it ACE, which is um, Academic Citizenship Point. And basically, this program is, um, and I'm actually going to pull out my website so you can see. A lot of these we have put down, you know, I don't know whether you guys offer a lot of, do you, does your office buy a lot of webinars and things like that? No, we don't buy. So we buy a lot of stuff like the, so, and one of the stuff I think which I've always fond of is a international IMC, International Medical Science Educator, and they offer a lot of things related to teaching, education, and then the basic science folks are involved in that. And I think our basic science colleagues, they're also very busy researcher. But so the teaching things, uh, whatever is offered, are they are actually webcast. So what we do under ACE, all these are 
um, archived. We, have, we purchase it so you can actually go ahead and uh, listen to it in real time and take part of it. So we have an institutional subscription. Or you can go ahead and visit them at your own pace. But what we do as a PhD is they don't get CME credit, but anybody, not, not necessarily only the PhDs, but we call it academic citizenship point or AC, ACE program. So you can watch this and there is a little form and they basically get some brownie points. So we have it like silver, bronze, and gold certificate after they finish. So we run through that. We also have on that website like um, NBME, writing multiple choice module, those kind of things, introductory tutorial. So you can do it at your own pace. And if you do 45 minutes to an hour session, then you get this ACE point. We have... Um, uh, our institution or med, our university has purchased Learning with Linda. That is an online faculty development. So I have curate, curated uh, some of the module related to our medical school faculty. So these are the bunch of stuff under ACE program. We also have implicit bias test from which Harvard runs it. And that is basically, I work with a diversity office and people who take that, the next is to invite them and have a conversation. But basically, ACE program offers, it's, you don't have to do it, but if you do it, it'll be good for you. And I think, again, we work with talented people. I think rewarding them, some sort of an incentive is good. So we give out certificate for participating. So once they get all these points, what do the, do the faculty, can they translate those points into some end game? I mean, do they get credit at, at an annual review? What does that turn into? So we have, uh, so in past, whenever we have a faculty awards, if somebody got, if you got silver, bronze, I don't think gets much, but the gold award, we have recognized them on a larger platform. So our program is, it's just basically we have an annual faculty awards, and I think the 50 ACE points is a certificate of excellence, a gold award, and 25 is silver and 10 is bronze. But this is open to all, so we've recognized people who have got the gold certificate of excellence on a, on a platform. It's a reward of recognition. So, so you mentioned a couple of things, and, I, and I'll get them wrong, but I want people to be able to go to your website or be able to find these. You mentioned learning with Linda and an international yeah. medical science educator, webinars that people can buy. Uh, where can, can they find these things on your website? Absolutely. So Marshall, we are Joan C. Edwards School of Medicine, Marshall University, Joan C. Edwards School of Medicine. And then on the top tab, it's faculty staff, and our office is listed faculty advancement. And if you click on that, and you have it all. Wonderful. That's wonderful. This is great, Darshana. So nice to talk to you. Yeah, this was super, uh, super informative. As always, you always have so much to share. And and you're clearly enthusiastic about um, these topics. And I just think your your journal, the Marshall Journal of Medicine, has been a, a tremendous uh, win for the community, for rural medicine, and it's going to have a lasting impact not only on patients but on learners and, and trainees in the future. So, well, job well done. And thank, thank you. you so Appreciate much. it. Um, thank you for joining us. That was uh, Dr. Darshana Shah. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement 
in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.